yeah so this idea that you kicked off on before we started recording tonight um of just you know like how to get basically a commitment outside of normal confines of commitment right um and by that i mean you know like their commitment is fairly reasonably easy to come by when it comes down to a job like there's a basic mass love sort of hierarchy that says like if your job tells you to show up and they're the ones that pay your bills you know there there's some of us that, that have achieved that um but then when it when it comes to you know like these other outside sort of things um the accountability shifts into this non-existent, maybe, um, you know, as Jung would call it, uh, super ego that has been <laughs> criminalized and shamed um, by <laughs> the last like four decades <laughs> into this, like, I don't know why we would even call it maybe super ego, um, you know, a lowercase s right. And, uh. and that's holding us accountable to these like bare minimums, like, show up to work but let alone to you know this other thing right and so the role of community really and this is what i want to get at because i'm like yeah that describes me up until a certain point and and it was always community um in this instance you know it happened a lot of these things happen to be through originative community but you know having been in bands uh, before there's also this sense of community and you're definitely right. not accountable to somebody that's paying your paycheck because there's really no money going no on paycheck. Um, <laughs> so so there's something else that takes place there's another degree of accountability and yeah. the, the beauty of the band, and we've discussed that before in having shared band experiences, and, and this is worth pointing it out, for no other reason than for, you know, the, the sake of camaraderie, you know, be it for art or for fame or for whatever, it, it's there. And so we show up. And then when we don't, we get kicked out and it's a big deal too, right? But, right. There, but the accountability is just so beautiful and the currency of the accountability is as or double or triple beautiful because it's not just this monetary transaction as you would find between employer and employee, right? Yeah, I would say it's worth even more because it's usually costing the person some amount of money. So they're, they're, they're in a situation where they're paying to be accountable to this micro community and I would guess that, you know, teams, um, especially like adult um, recreation leagues, like like a soccer team, you know, um, or something something else that you go to where you're committed to a team, um, mm-hmm. you got to show up every week. Uh, you pro- you're probably paying to be a part of it, um, and <laughs> rather than it just being a pickup league where you're just like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go show up and if I can get on a team then i'll i'll go play we're, we're really talking about the reason that bands have this quality in such a very demonstrable and, and predictable way i think is especially if if it's original music is that you uh-huh. are getting a group of people together 
and they're all, you know, getting behind a product <laughs> and it's, a, and it's a creative product. So they have a certain part of themselves invested in it. And so that's uh -huh. part of what they're getting out of it. But as soon as you're in that, you know, you like, like there, there's the, the cliche of when you're in a, a high school band or, or, you know, college band, and you get to this point with, with one of the characters that's maybe doesn't seem super committed and you're just like, all right, are you in or are you, <laughs> you know, or, or you, the band just stops calling that, that, that guy. And they're like, no, he's out. He's out of the band because uh -huh. he's not committed. Right. Like, uh -huh. and so it is an exclusivity, right. It's by, just by the nature of what it is. Cause you know, even if you, even if you had an orchestra, you know, it's still limited to, the amount of people that are involved in that. Uh, and the bigger that it gets, the more sort of interchangeable the positions are in many ways. If, if it's a, if it's a smaller, more um, uh, a tighter group and they're all collaborating, then they all have a stake in the product and they all have an emotional, that stake is emotional, if not spiritual, right? That's really, this is part three tonight topic is, is that's that we've been just drilling into and trying to move around maybe more successfully at sometimes than others the question is how do you go about teaching or fostering emotional and spiritual intelligence uh, within yourself within a group of students that you're working with within your family with within your community right all of those are applications for where that happens the easy answer might might be well join a church that's what they're for you know and i would say that's questionable uh whether <laughs> whether that really happens not that it can't happen there but the stake the emotional stake is based on the relationships that people are developing with other community members and what i've seen in a, in a lot of folks that are involved in in a church is that that can exist maybe really like on a positive basis for a while but it, with any congregation that's sizable, it's having its own fluctuations of changes, right? As soon as you add someone new to the group, you're changing the dynamics of the whole group. And sometimes that change is is small and the direction of the group can absorb it and still have the thrust in the direction that, in, that the whole group wants to, to be involved in. But if you lose a leader in those, or if you have uh, a large change of that congregation, often the whole thing is is lopsided, thrown off for a while, and then you have people that shed, go to different churches, you know, say they, well, I'm going to follow the pastor of this church to this new church that they're out because I like him, or I like her, and, you know, or I don't like the political stance of these people in the church, right? So it starts to get kind of dicey at that level. And whereas a band is this core... <laughs> <laughs> and and there was a time when Carl and I were both uh, like we had struggled to hire people that had the, all the qualities that we thought were necessary for being involved in uh, in the mentorship program of Originative and bringing directors in and just people to absorb the process and move it forward, help like take the ball forward um, and uh, get behind the vision and contribute to that vision in a collaborative uh -huh. way. Cause that's always the expectation is that we don't want, we, there, there's no possible way that Carl and I 
can conceive of everything that this and this organization needs to be. And uh, we're going to just, you know, roll that out in one memo after another to the group. It's like the expectation is always like, we're, we want to change with every new person that's added. Um, we're inviting that change. The pattern that we see in, in sometimes often it's, it's, it's a, it's a pattern that's repeatable with, with a lot of folks is that, if you haven't ever been a part of that committed to something that you have a lot of stake in like personal stake. And so you're willing to contribute to bend time to, and your resources and really try to cultivate something. Um, and a band is just a perfect example of that. Um, if you haven't ever been a part of that, it's hard to describe the expectations of what, of what that is right it's in, and it's not really fair to ask people to uh, engage in that when they without any understanding of what you're what you're really talking about you know people show up and they're just like what you want me to do what well how much are you going to pay me and it's like well you know sorry they like we try to limit the amount of financial exchange across the board you know if i were a musician that was wholly dedicated to my own stuff. And I understood that I was going to go, you know, on tour or something. And I didn't want to have any real lasting obligation to, uh, but I needed the work of, of performance done. I'd hire some musicians and say, Hey, you guys are awesome. Um, I need you to play these shows. This is a business arrangement. This is how much you get paid per show. Do you want it? Do you not want it? You know, and if they don't want it, go for it, find someone new. But when, when no one's making any money, there's something else involved that that is the glue, and that something else is getting at a tangible aspect of what this spiritual and emotional currency is that starts to lock us into something that's bigger than us. Yeah. So, want to introduce the episode with that? Yep. Welcome to part three of emotional and spiritual learning. This is the Ehakat season of the Originative Podcast. And I'm Ron Green. And I am Carl. And we are kicking it off here with part three on what is a conversation around spiritual and emotional learning and how to foster and promote that um, in positive and effective ways. One of the things that that I wanted to piggyback um, in this conversation and analogy of, you know, how to be successful in this uh, community possible endeavor, right? If, if we're going to talk about regenerative practices and holistic lifestyle, uh, it's only possible through a experience of community. And to be successful community members coming from societies that are hyper individual based is a tall order. And one of the ways that we've felt you can detect at least a certain possibility is when, um, you know, somebody's committed to something as a band. Um, where the currency of exchange is not uh, a job and your time for some money 
it's not blood related. We, we have those senses as well towards family for better, for worse. You know, we, we have a certain allegiances um, and, and therefore accountability uh, to meet or choose not to. But outside of that, it tends to be really hard to find real opportunities for the kind of a community that requires accountability that digs deep. And in a band, you can find that. Yeah. What was interesting, just going back to what you were saying about creative music and the parallel to what would be the expectation of anybody who would want to become um, or work their way through a mentorship program is to help and promote the evolution of the program as you're working through it, right? And it's great to think about, you know, you get a new guitarist in the band, right? Every record with that guitarist is the band when they were with that guitarist, right? And there's just a certain authenticity and trademark that is thrust upon um, what was already evolved to a certain point when the new came to it and it was only functional and it could only thrive on a as Prechtel would say never before seen evolution of that beauty that already existed when the parts came together there's something required and and, and that's where i think you know if we're going to cross over into the religious realm really the expectation within and we're going to touch i think a, a lot in this episode on a differentiation between you know spiritual growth and development versus uh religious um i don't know <laughs> advancement right mm-hmm. um yeah. and this is not at all digging into the topic of you know one faith or the other or one tradition or the other but looking at common things is that no one no one is invited into an established religious order with an expectation of evolving it right. uh, of right. participating and then taking it to the next level yeah, eventually that does happen right you know like but I guess there could be an argument against what I'm trying to put here, but, but ideally for as great as a record may be, or a band may be musically, what you want is that new thing that is relevant to the times and that is relevant to what had been accomplished before and has the essence, but also has the nuance, right? And institutionalized religion doesn't have a, taste for that it's struggle and it's cause and it's purpose is to somehow maintain that which always was and that is a you know if we go back to the first season um you know not the first season but the first part of this series that's the travesty in a misunderstanding of what ritual should be. Mm. And what Iliadi would have said was that the ritual is a participation in that which has always been with the nuance of something that has not yet. 
And so it's a reliving of the experience with something so new. We see that in the garden, right? We talked mm-hmm. about that in part two, the analogy of once you have your hands in the dirt and an experience of growing things, the analogies that you run into and the perspective and the learning that takes place at a conscious and spiritual level based on the physical concrete experience of being in the garden is really unquantifiable. But yeah, by design, a garden forces that recreation. It's part of the power of of a garden. Right. It it necessitates a regrowth, right? right? A time of fruiting, a time of harvest, a time of decay, a time of planting, time of germination, etc. all over again. So you got to, you have to redo everything. And bands are kind of like that because every time you start a new song, you're right. You're not starting from zero. You're right. not, it's not right. the first time that the band ever got together. And even if you replace the drummer or the sax player or whatever, somewhere down the road, you still are this organism. You know, Chris, Christopher Bache talks about this about groups as a living organism itself. And he specifically talked about like his university classes and that he could actually get a whole new group of students, but the new group of students were not starting from zero because the class already had a life. And so what they're coming into is still an evolution that was fostered by the previous class. Because what he noticed is over time, he's like, you know, after teaching this class, this, the same curriculum for like four or five years, the students just get everything quicker. And so I'm stuck, you know, we've already gotten through all this material and now we have this, we can go further. So he noticed that the entity or the organism of the class existed beyond the physical people, beyond the physical bodies, that it was something else that was greater than that, uh, that was just the repetition of the ritual of the class and the newness of the people that were coming and, and going through the process. It pushed the conversation and the content to a different place, that they were more sophisticated. And we watched this happen we have watched this happen in every fairy garden that we've ever started is that once the class, the, the new uh, kids that join the fairy garden, you know, three years into a fairy garden are not starting at all. It's not even possible to start where the, where the first class started when you, when you go in and start establishing the norms, the relationships, the exchange, what you find is that the, the time, that it takes a student to get to the same place that uh, that a student got to years before is faster uh, with that ritual going on. Yeah. Well, and we had touched on what we're talking about just to kind of, you know, go back and kind of weave each of these parts together in what is the, the geometrical figure that we like to bring into these conversations to visualize what we're talking about. And and that would be, instead of thinking things in a circular sort of way, it would be in a spiraling form in which its descendant, 
to where there's a similar growth each time you go around, but at a deeper level, um, not taking us greater and above, but deeper into a relationship. Yeah. Now, an interesting segue here um, uh, is that one of the things that we wanted to bring into the conversation today was a certain f- staging uh, that a James a. Fowler put forward on how to measure or identify different progressions within one's faith development, um, irrespective of the religious denomination or so on and so forth. Uh, what does the development of faith look like if we were to break it down into stages and phases? And so what's interesting in the segue is that we're going to participate in a conversation of something that is very linear, um, but it's a nice starting point for other conversations. And, and that, that's the way that we've always approached material that's out there. Certainly when it comes to just basic pedagogy, there's an appreciation of the constructivist, right? But then there's a, where did it end off? Same here, we're going to bring in, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the stages, present them, and have some back and forth on them. But it's also interesting to realize how linear what we're going to be discussing is when we vouch for that which is spiral. And I think that that's the development of this is far more complicated than what was presented at the time, but I would have no doubt that Fowler even himself would have agreed. Um, But he created this great document and mental framework within which to have a conversation in a quantitative way. And um, so that's what uh, Ron will be sharing a little bit on just as an introduction, and then we'll dive into some conversation about it. You know, we've talked about the the linear nature of uh, stages of development. Different models of stages of development have are commonly looked at within the education field. What these researchers have done is create a model where they've identified patterns. And they said, this is a pattern that we see on a regular basis. And that can be very, very helpful. Um, where I think it's limited, where, and this is where we usually get to with folks within the mentorship training, is that we want to use those as tools for understanding, but not as the framework for how and why everything happens all the time. Because just like within a garden, the developmental cycle of one plant over one season will look very linear. But we're not talking about just one season. We're talking about the really like the growth of the soil as all of these different entities move through a linear, uh, multiple linear cycles, right? So of growth and decay, growth and decay, growth and decay, or growth and decay. And if we're only isolating ourselves to be to looking at one particular snapshot of that garden, then we might say, oh, I got it. Totally understand. It's this linear thing. Mm-hmm. Starts here, ends here. Yeah. And over the years, we've had to be really mm-hmm. uh, disciplined about avoiding that type of thinking. And I want to just, you know, insert a a deconstruction that was necessary 
although it's easy, far easier to articulate now, but you know, the way you were describing, it, I was like, yeah, I think it's only been actually recently in which I've heard you be more articulate about your failures within the garden. And it's such a successful garden that hearing of certain things that didn't plan out as you had expected and you know some because of the seed some because of the area some because of the year the amount of water human responsibilities pests you know quote unquote like it's just been awesome to realize that it's an ongoing learning and certainly has a direction in which that learning's taking place that can be measured but it's also weight undulating, right? In the way that a wave, you would see a wave mm, pattern, sure. right? Um, anyway, so like, you know, going back to like when, when I was first, you know, wanting to learn this or that, especially when it came to garden, I realized that like what I was rubbing myself up against is that, and this happened actually to me when I, when I think about my language learning with Chinese and how unsuccessful I was with that, in many ways it was like, well, I was told it would be like this. And and I, I was told if I did this and this and this, the plant would grow. I was right. told that if I say this and put my mouth in this way, it would happen, right? right. And it's only if you're really flexible in acceptance of failure, almost to the point where you don't detect any of it as failure. It's just a different type of success. And we talked about that last week too, you know, um, then you start to see all the sorts of reaps and rewards. Yeah, that brings up something Fran said this last week in the WhatsApp thread where she talked about brokenness. Um, she's specifically talking about brokenness in families, but what I latched onto was the, this idea that brokenness is also the catalyst for new learning. And in the same way that you're talking about the failures, whether it be in language because when you're learning a new language, you can't possibly not make mistakes all the time. You're always making mistakes, mistakes that you have no idea about. Right, right. And developing a relationship with a garden space is like a controlled linguistic, it's a controlled language learning environment. What you're doing is learning the language of that ecosystem. And Every time you introduce something new to that ecosystem, it's responding. And the way it responds is output to you. So we talk about language learning in terms of input and output. So if I am not aware, if I don't understand the language of the ecosystem, right? You could say the language of nature, but that's kind of, it's, it's too much. This is like, this is the language of an ecosystem. Just try that, right? Just try one, you know, learning a language within one community, do your best, you know, be consistent, stay at it. Uh, so it's going to be difficult. Sometimes you're going to have little successes. Uh, something will grow, right? Uh, but the better you get at hearing and seeing the ecosystem's responses to what is happening on a daily basis, whether it's because of you, some interaction that you had specifically, or maybe it's the weather, maybe it's uh, insects are, that's all the language of that. And I am totally convinced that 
the process of learning that language has emotional and spiritual evolution built into it. It, Wait, it, so, it does both so, of those things. What, so what, what does? The process of learning the language of an ecology, of an ecosystem, uh-huh. right? So we talk about gardening. It's like a gardening. The problem is with that concept is that the image that's often the case of, of when you say garden is that you're going to have a, some plant, it's going to produce a vegetable that you want to eat. And that's what that's success or failure. If it does, if it happens, success. If it doesn't, it's it's failure. Right. But really, when what we're doing within a garden uh, analogy is is less about whether a chili plant is growing successfully or not. It's more about what's happening with everything. What does uh-huh. your soil look like? Is your soil healthy? Are you paying attention to the local plants that just show up and you had nothing to do with it. And what is your response to that? Do you say, you're not supposed to be here. I didn't plant you yet. And, and you yank it out. Like, I don't, you say, you must be a weed. Cause I didn't plant you. Um, <laughs> right. Like that's, that's what I call fascist gardening, right? Like this, the, the, the idea that you're going in or imperial gardening where you go in and, <laughs> and you're like, this domain is mine and I'm going, I'm going to be the benefactor here. Uh-huh. All of you are my slaves producing my food, right? You either do it or I'm going to, right? I will cut your water right, supply. Right. Like, so, which will only backfire on me, but let's go ahead. <laughs> And every time I see rows of plants, that's fascist gardening where you're like, okay, um, it looks like we're setting up the tomatoes to join the military and, you know, there, and we're, okay. uh, we're recreating a segregated classist society by saying, oh, the corner's over here. Well, we really like rows. Okay. We, we, we do it in our gardens and we do it in our classrooms and we do it in our call centers. Okay. We, we're row kind of people. All right. Yeah, we are. All um, right. Row hater. What else you got for us? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> let's just jump into Fowler. Wait, uh, wait. So Fowler. Before, before and I, I know this is going to be in a, a bit of an annoying leap, but you had something really great that you were saying before the, the learning of the ecology cr- forges like a muscle that of that of spiritual, like what was like that? And then let's dig into Fowler. <laughs> well, so you brought up learning Chinese and, and, and the frustration. And, and I look at developing a relationship with uh, microecology and, and it could be a four by four foot square. It's not a big deal, um, but it's a relationship development. So it's, so it's not like you're just, going and sitting there and observing, although that's a huge part of it. It's not the only part. It's that you are a participant, a very active participant, uh, even if it's just observing. You, as being an active observer, are participating within that ecology. Uh Your breathing is, is making that uh, respiration, that exchange of gases, that affects the localized gases of, the, of that, that area, right? But when we expand it to 
say a, a plot, let's just say a raised bed, and this is what we're going after. And, and the, the premise for why we would do that is typically, well, I want to grow some food, right? Yeah. I want to grow. And we're going to say that the plants that people are most attracted to are probably, you know, on the order of a dozen that, that are the most likely plants <laughs> to go, to go in, into that situation. And the first question I would ask is, okay, well, um, how many of those preferable plants that you're going to try to cultivate there in that garden, how many entitled, of them? entitled plants, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> special plants, <laughs> how many of those are native? And how many of them are not? Do you know which ones are native? Do you know which ones are not? Um, and this is important because native plants will attract pollinators, whereas you know non-native plants will often attract invasive species because an invasive now, species now at a gene level, um, because there's so much manipulation of them, like. Can we even talk about species of plants right now without talking about like, cause you know, corn can be native, but are you referring to all corn or like, what are you referring to as native plant? Yeah. I'm saying, does the ecosystem recognize your plant? Uh-huh. Right. And what I mean by that is, does the place and all of the relations that are commingling in that place, how do they recognize the plant that you're choosing to plant? Okay. And we see the idea of invasive species versus native species are almost wholly described because of a, an imbalance there's a problem, right? There's too many of one thing. Why are there too many of one thing? Uh, like Japanese beetles. There's too many Japanese beetles because they're not native and they don't have enough natural predators to keep their population in check. And so they just go, they just go crazy. They're like, this is great, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. So my question is like, well, well, what plants are you planting, right? So a Japanese beetle, what does a Japanese beetle eat? And they don't eat corn. That's native to here. They don't eat tomatoes. Those are native to the Americas. They don't eat chilies. They, they don't eat tomatillos. So nothing in the nightshade family, which, are, you know, like, the, which is as, as a whole family. They don't eat potatoes. Yeah. All right. So a lot of our staple crops that are native to the Americas are not even recognized as a food source by Japanese beetles. Right. Like, I don't know what that is. Um, now there's other ones that they do. Uh, grapevines, uh, for one. That's because we had uh, vinifera on both sides of the, uh, of the Atlantic, right? We have old world grapes, new world grapes. That's, you know, all similar families. They're old, huh. old families. So I'm not saying that, I mean, they're amelanter or service berries are, are native and they like to munch on those leaves, um, but they don't munch on choke cherry leaves, right? They munch on cherry leaves, but not choke cherry leaves. Why do they munch on cherry leaves? Because, you know, like, what do they have in Japan? Cherries, <laughs> cherry right. blossoms, right? So they recognize it's, it's, it's a, 
commingling of who you recognize. Like he's, he's like wow. showing up at, uh, you know, showing up for the first day of school uh, when you're in ninth grade and being like, all right, where are my people? <laughs> you're just scanning. So you're trying to figure out how to recognize the people who you're probably going to fit in with and maybe try to avoid the people that you don't recognize, right? Like, and if we give the Japanese beetle a lot of time, eventually the, the environment will recognize it and it'll balance it itself out. You know, nature will just do that, right? Uh, and in the meantime, what is our place? And our response is our attempt at some output some linguistic output. So like what I'm going to do in this moment with the Japanese beetle is a lot like what I'm going to say, what, what, what is my attempt in trying to speak Chinese? I'm trying to buy this, uh, I don't know, hot pot. And, and, and I'm going to try to say this and we're going to just see how it goes. Right. And the more you observe and the more you listen the better tuned your response is. And that's uh, the same way with the Japanese beetle. So I know when they come out, I know they're now done. I saw them waning two, three weeks ago. I was just like, okay, there's just not as many. And every day I picked up less and less and less. And now they're gone. Right. Huh. So, uh, yeah. uh, so I know better about what the window is this year on the Japanese beetle. Right. And I, right. and I did a, the best job that I have done to this point of mitigating their destruction within the garden, because I'm pulling them off of the grape leaves and I have a decoy plant, a Virginia creeper plant that they go on first. And so I use that and I harvest them from that. They're all food for my chickens and turkeys who love them, but it's time consuming. It's, so, it's a, so, so what's this? Let's learn from me a little bit here on the Japanese beetle in Denver, Colorado, uh, around the backyard garden. Uh, what When's the season run from? So they come out in June. Um, as it starts getting hot, they... Out with the June bugs. Yep, yeah. They start to pop out, and then their season can wane towards, basically towards the end of August. Around Labor Day, they're gonna you're going to see them kind of drop off. And if we get in Denver, if we get a strong cold spell then we'll see them They're drop gone. off like like right quick because they so hate cold. so they hate in the, cold. the in the peak of the season in your garden uh-huh. are you picking them up once a day like do you just five, do five it a little a bit throughout the, huh five times a day at least five times a day and how many are you getting in the peak of the season mm. each trip out to the garden i'm i'm probably pulling off 100 to 200 beetles so 500 a day? Yeah, easy. 500 beetles a day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the peak of season. Yeah, you go to you go to one leaf might have, you know. No, cuz we we have them here. Um and I've I've thought, wow, like I'm glad I asked. I thought, well, this might be we might need to cut this part out of the thing, but um, you know, I'm, I'm going based on what, like I see here, um, when it's, you know, chowing down on our broccoli leaves and our apple tree, those are the ones it really likes here. Um, yeah. you know, I'm talking about 11 or 12, right? It's cause it's 
cold in Maine. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, like, and, and I was actually, I was actually just pulling up where Japan is laterally in the United States, you know, and, and like Colorado is like right at that peak point. It must like, you know, and you're picking up 500 in what's, you know, a regular backyard, um, you know, sort of space. And, and that's really gets into a whole other conversation, which is a lifestyle that allows you to be there for the 500 beetles um, on a routine basis. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, if you go on vacation, you can say goodbye, say goodbye to yeah, everything. You're done. You know, five days, five days off from that job. It's like, well, you're never going to, you're never going to get that back. Um, and when we left on vacation this, this last summer, we left for, you know, eight days, I think like, and so I knew that, that it was going to be destroyed. There and would be loss. You just never thought it would be as much. Right. No, what happened was interesting. We left. The Japanese beetles went crazy. Three days before we came back, we... Uh, there was a hailstorm, right? We got a monster hailstorm right. that reduced my backyard to about 30% of what it was. Well, and, and let me let me interject here a little bit because you had some, like a friend, caretaking, right? So this goes back to the thing that we were talking about earlier in terms of the band and then relating it to the certified mentorship in that, you know, like, come, let's learn something together and then, you know, take it wherever it needs to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, this is a good, you know, with what analogy. you're saying yeah. about what happened to the garden here, here you had laid clear instructions on all of the things that need to happen and then there's the nuance and the only one that has the body of knowledge to respond to something that had never happened before was not going to be the one that was assigned to do what had always happened before. It had to be that, that push into a song that sounds like the band, but sounds like no other song we've ever put out and all of us love it. Right. Um, the experience right. of going through Imish Eek in the certified mentorship program and then pushing it, you know, to the, you know, we're touching on that here. Yeah. Hailstorms are common, but, but you're right. I, you know, I had a, a gentleman to, um, to stay at my house and feed the chickens, the dogs and then water the garden. Inadvertently, uh, he turned off our irrigation system. <laughs> so in addition to getting this massive hailstorm, which provided <laughs> water, it certainly provided, you know, it was, there was rain with the hail for sure. But, you know, that poor guy, he, he didn't know what to do with the hail. It's just like, uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's, it, it reminds me of when, I, you know, you know, a time when I was, uh, uh, I was about 22 years old and I was tasked to watch, watch some uh, friends, dogs, uh, and uh, one of them escaped. And uh, I guess this happened on a regular basis. And they're like, yeah, he escapes sometimes. We just got to go out and try to track him down. And I tried to track him down and couldn't track him down. And, and then he never came back. And at the end of the, you know, when my friends came back into town, they found out that the dog had been shot by the police. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. You know, like that, you know, that stuff is happened. So. 
Um, it's all part of that of that learning process. And the stake, the emotional stake, sets up our the yeah. possibility, I think, for a spiritual stake. Yeah. Right. Not necessarily in that order, but I think it's it's rare that you're going to oh. have necessarily a spiritual experience without having an emotional stake in it. Yeah. Um, now you might have experiences that you're just like this; these are unexplainable, and so I can only say that it's a, that it's a spiritual experience. But we're better informed by actually having a relationship with that thing, you know, without mm. getting too far into the weeds of like. You know, there's a lot of interest around hallucinogenics. And I remember uh, reading a, a Daniel Pinchbeck novel when, when we were at Studio One. And my complaint uh, about the Pinchbeck novel, do you, know, do you remember what that's yeah, called? Yeah, of course. This? It was like uh, for the 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. I, so, I remember that being um, such a, it was so, it was so perfect for, for the time that I had been in all of this because not that I had caught up on the material that you had been working me into, but uh, certainly you were okay with me participating in an exploration of new material, which is absolutely relevant to everything that we're talking about in terms of coming to the conversation and then, you know, taking the conversation wherever it needs to go. We're going to drive it that idea home and in, in this part but you know at that point uh you know it was 2012 right or somewhere close to that yeah, um, no it was 2012 for sure going on and so his daniel pinchbeck's book was you know really famous and it just felt like i i don't know if it was at that point that you had said it but you it's something you always say is like you got to have an atheist in the room Right. And so the, the idea is brilliant. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I oftentimes think about it and try to fill that role when it doesn't exist. And it gets me in a lot of trouble. But going through that, there was so much learning that took place. And it actually reminds me if we're going to throw some, some other parallel here, you know, I'm working through, uh, wildness and domesticity by robert bly his collected you oh, know man. criticism of poetry at the turn of the century and so on and 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 how he says like we became masters of the poetic form and mechanics and somehow in that process we lost the soul and right. and and so you know we can say the same exact thing when it comes to gardening and we've got farmers um, now choosing to do things in a different way. We also have that happening in in education, and so this push for something that has the substance and yet the nuance is really beginning to pop up, and it's exciting to get behind. My my point in bringing up. Pinchbeck was to say that as informative as his book was, and I think it was, I think it was well done. What I was challenged by was the exploration of all these different hallucinogenics um, was done in this sort of touristy way. And we've talked about tourism yeah. um, <laughs> at, you know, at length. Yeah. And now we're at a place where theories are coming out about the, that, that hallucinogenics were maybe, um, you know, partially responsible, if not wholly responsible for the development of consciousness or, or the homo sapiens expanded uh, ability for consciousness. And my thoughts on that are that historically, 
these were not done outside of a community, even if they were being done by an individual, say, I don't know, say a shaman or a medicine man or woman or a spiritual leader, the engagement in that was within the context of the community and what it was going to provide for the community. Whereas now we're at a place where that's not really interesting to a lot of folks. And, and, and even if it is, how are they going to get it? What, what, How are they what, going what's to, not interesting to a lot of folks? Well, the process of saying, like, if, if I'm going to go do ayahuasca, let's just say, uh-huh. um, you know, I can pay a certain amount of money and go have this experience. Right. And and then I can, you know, and the experience can be what it is, right? But right. traditionally, right. <laughs> what created the relationship that allowed that experience to ever be had in the first place was a relationship, and around that relationship were rituals and nuances and a story and layers of respect for the context right. of what that entity is mm-hmm. within the greater whole. And if we go through this world only as individuals, we're missing out on that community aspect. Right. And within the community aspect is not just the accountability that you're talking about or the commitment and the reciprocity and the mutualism there. It's that that's part of what gives us purpose is our contribution, seeing our contribution be metabolized Uh by a greater whole. But if we don't move through the world with that intention, then it reminds me of Joseph Campbell's uh, comment that, well, you can go through life with, right, without myth right. and just have a life without myth. But yeah. but if you do engage in myth, and that myth part is going to be, I want to kind of dial in when we start to unpack uh, James Fowler here. Yeah, let, let's dig into what is James Fowler's stages of faith. Um, I will go back in a little bit of like the history of how I came to it. And you can add a little bit of that. I think um, I would like to revisit that with you. It's been a long time in other podcasts or at other moments, I've expressed that having come from such a fundamentalist Christian background, um, though having met Ron at the age of 28, I was incredibly curious that it came with a certain degree of skepticism um, and extreme caution as to what was I getting myself into um, in this, you know, relationship and exchange of ideas. Um, Within all of that, one of the areas of comfort and safety that seemed of uh, a lot of appeal to me, and I would doubt um, you would know this when everything related to education was so new to me uh we had gone through the whole curriculum related to you know even what we'll talk about here john pay's theory of cognitive development lawrence kohlberg's stages of moral development and and i was ready to receive all of that but i felt like i was a little out of my league um certainly no parallel peer camaraderie going on and then all of a sudden fowler came in And at the time, you know, with at least something of world religions and anthropology under my belt, like I could be like, 
wow, I've never been exposed to this, but I can understand it. And if anything, mm. I'm pissed right now that I haven't been exposed to it. How is it possible, right? Uh, not not <laughs> that I graduated from a Christian liberal arts school, but I certainly went through three you know, intense years of a lot of classes in which this could have at least come up and it didn't. And though James Fowler has his Judeo-Christian uh, background, one of the things that has appeal to why we have continued to come back to it first is a, and, and to a certain degree, it's unique in, in and of its kind. But second is that it really avoids and, uh, and, and tries to be applicable uh, no matter what faith tradition you're coming from. And that has an appeal, especially right now, in which we're trying to find effective ways to become more spiritually and emotionally aware. How can we do that? And it has to be free of certain like dogmatic confines. So this one seems right. free enough. Um, and Ron, maybe you can dig in and uh, kind of go through those stages a little bit and any background you want to add. Yeah, I'll start out by saying what, I, what we usually don't say to uh, mentor interns. Usually we just present things. And because I, I love presenting something and just seeing how people respond. We have a list, an extensive list, an exhaustive list of questions that we pose to people that are interested in the certified mentorship process. It's called the Imish questions. That's a list of questions that has evolved into four different sets of these questions, depending on where the person is coming from, where they're at in their life. And one of the questions that we ask, uh, because we really wanted ideas that were not from us, one of the questions that we asked is... If it was your job to teach your students emotional and spiritual intelligence, what are some concrete ways that you would go about doing that? Mm -hmm. Because we're interested in in how other people come yeah. to this. You know, you don't have to be. Yeah, I love that one. In fact, I, I would argue that if you have not engaged in conventional education career, you might be better apt to answer that question. <laughs> Because it, it may strike you as more, much more relevant than um, than the conventional system would allow. But we usually, uh, as a diagnostic, I just throw things out there, see how they respond. And one of the, a very common misconception with a lot of the material that we present in the certified mentorship process is that interns will presume that a piece of material is endorsed by us because it's being used in the program. And that's a very, very interesting assumption. And I think it's born of the way that the uh, conventional system works is that if the system doesn't approve of it, it's not in the system, right? That's why Fowler wasn't in your, the curriculum at your school, because it was purposely not there. <laughs> the fact that it wasn't there <laughs> is, says a lot about the decisions that were being made. <laughs> within the curriculum department at the school, right? We'll we'll, we'll talk about Bly and Naropa <laughs> here in the next episode. <laughs> so what I like to do is use catalysts to say, okay, well, what is this? Like, what, what do you make of this? And so right. our engagement with Fowler here is not necessarily an endorsement of, of... Now, how did you come across this? Because I wanted 
more material that discussed the spiritual domain. And but this was after your master's in education. Correct. This was just out of a curiosity of learning later on. Like like frame that a little. Sure, bit. is that it was actually my master's in poetics at Naropa was where I was exposed to Colbert, which is ironic. Oh, really? <laughs> it wasn't. Having having uh, done, you did something in education. Yeah, yeah, that, right? I got a master's in curriculum and instruction and from, did, from Colorado so you Christian got it University. Out of a master's degree in instruction, curriculum and instruction without being exposed to Colbert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's happening yes. everywhere. No, and you know, par for the course, man. Uh <sighs> it it was a Christian university. You know, I I don't have a lot of complaints about either oh, either one of those those uh, those programs, wow, but that's interesting. Fowler Creepy, was definitely man. not discussed at Colorado right, Christian University. No so I'm um, not that he couldn't have been. I I was as baffled when I came across it as as you were. Yeah. So it's like they get not only everything that you're mentioning, but it's also that that caution. Like we saw the same thing when what was that guy's name? Like with the the um, study of fairy tales starts with a b betelheim Betelheim, right so like he gets completely written off and he's discredited (laughs) right and nobody can study him right like (laughs) right now i was actually even discussing this with somebody and uh i think it was my sister like like oh i was describing Bly to her in terms of how he's been discredited by the academics and we'll see that how that'll change over the next 25 years since now he's dead (laughs) that'll be really fascinating for the first time in our life um we'll be able to witness what has happened time and time again right everybody knows like the stories of you know van gogh right and he didn't sell a painting in his whole life and then 50 years later he was you know like we are actually happen is is these jokers that are all excited about hallucinogenics will uh try to make their dissertations and their practicums at the academic level relevant to psychedelics they'll rediscover the sufis and the mystics and when they do that they'll, they'll then they'll rediscover right. bly and bly will have a research this will all happen in the next 20 <laughs> right, to 50 right. years well you yeah, they, yeah there there you go like you defined how it would take place right and all these people will be jumping on board and saying ah he was right he was right and nobody understood like we're about to go through that uh anyway like a guy like fowler falls within that same belt he's just not accepted but it's nice to be able to look at some that's even more so of a chance to look at something and even though not widely accepted because i think this is where we have to have caution that which is widely accepted doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know where we need no, to go no. um, but you need to know educational this is our our premise you need for, to know for, yes for mentors is that you absolutely need to know all of those conventional theories. You need to know how the system got to where it is. Absolutely. hundred percent. That is it. That is a must. And so we have to study that in the case of Fowler. uh, Well, let's, let's jump in because I want to come back to at some point why Fowler is not only, he's not in the academic system really, and he's also not always in the um, system of faith-based institutions, right? Yeah. It's probably not yeah. just because he's Methodist. 
Ah, he's a Methodist. Whatever. So he starts out, uh, he crafted uh, much in Piaget's uh, manner of numbering a scale of development from nothing to highly developed, right? Whether it's physical, cognitive, and Erickson was was a part of that too. And then Kohlberg came up with his um, progression of moral development. And so you have those structuralists and Fowler is really a part of those, or he's, he's contributing to that school. He was born in 1940. He's, uh, he passed away in 2015, just to give you some context of uh, the time in which he's doing his work. And he's crafted these six stages, actually seven, because he includes a zero stage of progress towards higher and higher. So this is an ascensionist's perspective. Um, so we're going to move from uh, little development to high, the highest development that he has conceived of uh, in spirit, in terms of I'm putting it as a spiritual development. He calls it this, the stages of faith, right? So that's uh-huh, the, yeah. the language, mm. the choice of words there probably has something to do with publication because when you say the word spirituality, you can, right, you know, they're like, well, isn't this some hippie thing? Um, right. So yeah. they probably thought about that, wow. right? Like the audience he was trying to be accepted by ended up being the ones that did not, right? He could have been far more successful, you know, and, and give these kids something to talk about in stages of spirituality. It's really interesting to think about <laughs> those directions. Yeah, I mean, he's still an empiricist, right? He tried to create an empirical model. Right. And so he's he's using right. the institution of science as a way to right. legitimize these patterns that he sees in people's relationship with faith. So let's begin to unpack it a little bit. Stage zero, he calls primal or undifferentiated. He qualifies this as birth to two years, uh, characterized by an early learning of the safety of, of their environment, warm and safe and secure compared to hurt, neglected, abused. He postulates that if there's consistent nurture, then one will develop a sense of trust and safety about the universe and the divine. Conversely, negative experiences will cause one to develop and distrust. Uh, a distrust about the universe and the divine. That's interesting. Don't know if it's totally true, but yeah. Okay. At least he's taking a risk in saying something. That that That's one of the really great things about Feller is because he's going to a place where I'm like, you know, not a, yeah. not a lot of people yeah. tried to do this. And not, not a lot of people had, you know, maintain an academic career. Yeah. Granted, he yeah. was, he was at, um, a Methodist-based college, but... Well, here's what's really interesting about that line. Conversely, okay, negative experiences will cause one to develop distrust for the universe and the divine. Uh, consider this, his audience. No, that's the devil's work. And we have C.S. Lewis letters to, you know, screw, the screw tape letters as the philosophical framework within which Fowler was trying to at least have his foot in the door, right? And so to say that the person that develops distrust is because of their experiences 
puts weight on the lack of spiritual development on society. It puts responsibility on the nurture. Uh, and that is a dangerous slope. Who wants to be putting that into right. schools? He's not saying anything different than what we say about, you know, emotional development is that, you know, experiencing trauma and neglect and abuse at an early mm-hmm. age is going to have a detrimental impact on Right, but parents can make mistakes. Yeah. The organized religions of the world do not make well, mistakes. Well, they're not supposed to. <laughs> well, and so that's what he's up sure. against, right? You can have an emotional book about emotional traumas, and you can pinpoint parents. Everybody, every good parent wants to know about some other that's not that great. That's a bestseller right there. Right. But you don't really want to write anything that disqualifies the religious institutions that would not attribute the difficulties of coming to faith on society so poignantly there. They would attribute it to, you know, lacks of faith, right? Without qualifying what Fowler's taking the risk to qualify, which is, well, let's look at a lack of faith. How does it look different if we were to separate it into stages? That's the brilliance of this whole thing. Yes, except continuing with what you just said, he qualifies this as zero to two years. What if the distrust, what if the neglect and abuse happens by, say, a Catholic priest uh, who is sexually abusing kids within the church? Would that perhaps at that point, you know, they're not, they're probably not zero to two years old, um, but might that have an effect on causing them to develop a distrust about the universe and the divine? You know, is that possible? Is the only relevant (laughs) trauma, the trauma that occurs from zero to two years? Well, let's go on to the next stage and see what happens. So he says that transition to the next stage begins with the integration of thought and language, which facilitates the use of symbols and speech and play. So this is going to be our tools for making sense of how we trust or or distrust, right? Um, So stage one is where things really kick off. Intuitive, uh, projective faith. This is ages three to seven. It's characterized by the psyche's unprotected exposure to the unconscious and marked by a relative fluidity of thought patterns. That's a little abstract. Um, religion is <laughs> religion is learned mainly through now, now, so here is a problem. He says religion is learned mainly through experiences, stories, images, and the people that one comes in contact with. That's true. We are, I mean, epigenetics says that we that even genetically, we're always responding to our environment. So what happens in our environment absolutely plays a role in crafting um, how we develop uh, cognitively, emotionally, communally, spiritually. But that word that he starts with, religion, is learned. Now, he doesn't say faith. Yeah, interesting. He says religion. Uh And so he's immediately confusing the idea of religion with faith. And -hmm. and we already know that that's not, that those are not synonyms. Uh, So, so we have a problem there. That's an empirical problem actually for being an empiricist. I don't mean to like 
totally pick him <laughs> pick him apart so quickly. But but this also may contribute to why he isn't you know discussed in greater in greater detail, right? Um, right. You, you have to be very forgiving yes. of him yeah. for it to yeah, have any exactly. validity. Yeah, and we are. Oh, yeah. We are. Okay. I love James Fowler. Love it. <laughs> like are. to have a glass of wine with him. <laughs> and, and Methodist, right. you know, pub. Right. But it's great to highlight that too. Like, I like that you're slowing down, you know, because <laughs> I've got so many like friends that would be like, religion is learned that just immediately. But like, well, why do well, I I'm even done. care? <laughs> right. As, yeah. And, and, and that I think is an important quality of not being too dismissive of realizing, you know, I, th- I think there's a certain sensitivity that is developed when you've studied translated texts hmm. and you realize that there's multiple translations of it. And that I think you learn that from that sort of experience, but also from revisiting yeah. texts. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about this. The revisitation Cyclical of learning, man. Cyclical. Um, yeah. Come back to it. That you dismissed maybe in high school, right? But uh, you gave it a jab, you know, at 27, you might find something yep. you didn't find, right? Um, the unfortunate aspect of the traditional learning arrow of literacy development is that if you touched it in 11th grade, whether or not you should have been touching it, you never touch it again. Yeah. And the great, and shame, so of, here the great saying, shame of public education English classes. Yeah. Right. How many people do you have saying, ah, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Cause it's a right? curriculum, it's a and curriculum that, decision, not a individual. Yeah. I read that. Right. And what they're referring to is a time when they were 15, it was mandatory. And a lot of the things that came up in the book you were exposed to, but not able to reflect on them because you hadn't yet had those experiences. You were exposed to the conversation of them as if this was a PG rating that you were invited to and you should not have been invited to because you haven't experienced them. So why would you talk about them? Why would you read about them? Why would you hear about them unless you had had the experience who wants to give away the outcome, right? That's happening with the fiction that we're reading and then say, we're never going to read again. And all we're saying is, well, there's a fair chance that you might be right, but there's a possibility that you might be wrong. Revisit the text. Right. And so if we read that line again, religion is learned mainly through experiences, stories, images, and the people that one comes in contact with. Well, what stories that you came across between the ages of three to seven might have influenced you? What would happen if you came back to them now? What would happen when you come back to them when right. you're 60, when you're 85, right? So again, yeah, the yeah. story changes. It's not as easy as saying that, that this happens in stage one. Because every stage well, see, see, is really is... cumulative. So what happens in stage zero, and it's not that he's not saying that either. He's saying the faculties that are afforded you by stage zero don't necessarily, they can't necessarily stop. You can't stop stories from being influencing and images and the people that you come in contact influencing uh, the fluidity of your thought patterns. That's going to happen. So 
this could be looked at as a very strict, like, okay, this happens and then it's over. And then this happens. And Mm -hmm. I prefer to look at this as like, okay, yeah, you might not be doing intuitive, projective faith, uh, you know, at one year old, but you don't stop doing that when you're three, right? right? You don't stop doing it when you're seven and you move on to stage two. Yeah, so let's talk about stage two, and then I want to how highlight how silly it is to have this frame of mind that you're done with stories between three and seven, right? I just don't go back to the mm-hmm. children's stories. That that has been the great folly of our psychological development in terms of understanding ourselves because we refuse to go back to stories and we know very little that the going back to the stories that became foundational in a stage one if revisited then we can obtain what would be stage two the mythical liberal content of those stories but processed as a school child age if we see stages of faith in a cyclical way, there could be something a fair bit more healthy than seeing it in a linear way. Yeah. I want to dovetail something else onto exactly what you're saying, but I want to introduce stage two first. Mythical, literal stage of faith, mostly in school children, is characterized by persons having a strong belief in the justice and reciprocity of the universe and their deities are most always anthropomorphic. During this time, metaphors and symbolic language are often misunderstood and taken literally. So he says a lot here. (laughs) He says a lot. Ultimately, (laughs) he's dismissing whole continents, (laughs) I would say. You know, he's dismissing so Mm -hmm. much of the world. And he's assuming that the rest of the world functions as a (laughs) Western based, you know, conventional education model of, you know, this is what a home looks like. This is what a nuclear family looks like. This is what uh, an an economy looks like. And you just have to grow out of those rabbits that are talking to you. And, uh, And he says mostly in school children. So we're done with this by, more or less the age of 12 is what he's saying that is that well what 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 also is like startling to me is is that not only the western versus eastern or you know urban versus you know wild contrast that clearly he's depicting who he is and how he understands the cosmos but when it comes to like children, the dismissive nature of their natural connection, which indigenous traditions, like they would have qualified all of this in a the opening, right? Yeah. And then the closing. Yeah. Right. And there's still ages that are concrete there, but it's acknowledging a certain openness and a certain closing off of 
in almost juxtaposed contrast to this to where here it's like children up until the age of 12 are completely dismissed for their silly <laughs> experiences of faith and then yeah from 12 on they kind of begin to get it but it's adults that are really beginning to get it and making major milestone <laughs> you know crossings like that's pretty it's pretty ballsy. like uh, yeah. audacious it's, um you know especially from an indigenous like understanding of that connectedness with the divine <laughs> upon birth that prevails yeah. you know what i mean like no indigenous culture around the world is dismissing the child just born right it's in veneer adoration and even within the judeo-christian you know theology it's still there in the manger it is deity right but somehow fowler missed yeah the mark. He, he really did and you know this is why fowler dealing with say someone like campbell would just be really difficult or or eliati yeah right because these characters yeah. are dealing with myth at a stage six level of fowler and fowler has right. dismissed myth at stage two explain that a little bit just so that we're clear and moving forward why fowler is dismissing and how monumental really that is to the framework of our entire conversation here in originative that to dismiss myth at a bare stage two is a gruesome offense that really flies against anything that we're really trying to do yeah here. i mean ultimately fowler is saying that people need to grow up and you need to stop thinking that you need to stop personifying the world the earth isn't alive the rock isn't alive your garden isn't speaking to you plant your garden in rows and take the fruit that comes off of it because that's what you're owed for the work that you put into the garden it's like well did you grow it <laughs> i love this thing that Pricktel said and i don't know if it was if it was in text form if i heard him but he's he talks about how when you give a spiritual gift you don't give someone say some produce from your garden because you didn't do any of the work to, to grow the food. The plant did. Now you might've done work to try to make sure that that plant was as successful as it could be, but that plant did it all. And if it wasn't going to produce it there, you know, if it wasn't going to produce it there naturally, then it was planted in the wrong place, right? That a plant's going to do what it does. And this is this is why the, the whole concept of like, well, you know, does the wild need to be managed? And do we consider um, the wild something that is untouchable, right? So mm. this really gets into that, what Bly is diving into with the idea of the, the contrast between domesticity and wildness. Um, a gentleman who uh, you may see on Facebook once, once in a while, uh, David Braden lives very close here, talks about humans as a keystone species. So the humans have always worked as a participant in the wilderness, rather than the wilderness being blocked off from humans and being like, that's pristine, you don't go there. 
Or when you go there, you don't have any interaction other than to leave it like it was, right? He's, you know, when you look at the number of food plant species in the Amazon, for example, or the, the Northeast forest in New England, there are far more nut trees than would be there naturally if you left it just as it is. That we know that the uh, indigenous culture uh-huh. was absolutely impacting uh-huh. in, in a very meaningful and intentional way um, their environment. But the way that we are uh-huh. closed off, we've blocked ourselves off from wildness, we're not able to see the myth which deals directly with this exchange between domesticity and wildness. It provides roadmap after roadmap of how to navigate between those two worlds in a healthy way and provide some warnings along the way for what might happen, what kind of travesty you may be that may befall you if, uh, if you don't do things in, in one way or the other. So he has decided because he comes from a very straight laced, sterile background He's decided that the mythic, which he oddly ties to the literal, <laughs> because he's <laughs> absorbed this notion, which is faulty, that abstract thought doesn't begin to develop in the brain until uh, until after eight years old, after seven or eight years old. Uh, it's totally faulty. The last time I, I heard this in a, in a classroom, I was doing Crick Crack, so I was... Uh, I was singing with kids and uh, one of the interns said, well, these kids, this age, you know, this age group, they're four-year-olds. They don't understand abstract thought. And I said, you don't think they understand abstract thought? He said, no, that's what all the books say. I was like, really watch this. And I sang Farmer in the Dell, right? And what's the last verse of Farmer in the Dell? <laughs> Hi ho, Medelia, the farmer in the, the mouse, dell. <laughs> the mouse, ta- the cheese stands alone. The cheese stands alone. Oh, Hi ho, the, uh-huh, the The cheese uh-huh. stands alone. The cheese so, stands alone. And so when okay. I when I got done singing, I reached my hand out and I said, "Can you give me the cheese?" And <laughs> the child right in front of me picks an imaginary piece of cheese up off the ground and puts it in my hand, and then I <laughs> ate it. And I said, what's literal about that? <laughs> it's absolutely ludicrous. Like someone someone came up with this idea. Yeah, I know, and... I know. And that read read that stage two again. I think we've given enough of a background of where we're coming from when we're reading this, but go sure. into stage two again. Mythic literal faith, mostly in school children, is characterized by persons having a strong belief in the justice and reciprocity of the universe, and their deities are almost always anthropomorphic. During this time, metaphors and and symbolic language are often misunderstood and are taken literally. Yeah, that would be like saying that, you know, that a five-year-old doesn't know how to tell a joke. (laughs) Five-year-olds tell me jokes all the time. In fact, joking is one of the primary diagnostic tools that I use for cognitive development to understand. I'm like, okay, well, what what are they getting? Do they understand 
that I'm joking yeah. or do they think yeah. that I'm being literal? Well, not only cognitive, but you can also get yeah. social, social emotional, right? Because the joke that is well delivered at the right time for the yep. right people, um, no matter what it is, like may not be funny to you, but if all of his five-year-old friends are laughing, he's got something yeah. you don't got. How many times you've been there with like a, like a teacher that can't make a group of five-year-olds laugh, like in, a, in an entire yeah. semester. <laughs> and then they've got this one kid that stands up at the front and he delivers through humor, right? The trickster, jester, um, comedian of antiquity, connecting with his peers, requiring a socio-emotional intelligence that is far above that of his peers. And it's detected just in, well, what's their right. level of humor? Yeah, yeah, Love that. Uh, so this stage has... Uh, a lot of challenges. Well, what what's troubling to me is that like if we bring in a nature versus nurture component to this discussion of are they true or not, like my understanding of spiritual development aligns, you know, quite a bit with a, an indigenous understanding and also a Buddhist understanding that in the womb we were enlightened and the trauma of the birth became such that you know we we kind of forgot and 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 got started on all things all over again that isn't necessarily immediate in that there's a, a certain nurture factor that also kicks in in how all of that innate connectivity with the divine is progressively lost mm -hmm. right by the nurturing of church you know society schools right and so the irony even if we were to take a serious look at this whole thing is that that which you're saying pushes one through a stage zero one and two of fowler is actually the nature of the beast which is not that the child cannot you know understand myth for its you know symbolic meanings but it's that, unfortunately, as a society, by the time that they are 7 through 12, we have caused them to no longer believe in myth for what it is, but unfortunately misunderstand it and take it as mm -hmm. literal. You know what I mean? Like there's an extreme danger in the responsibility of just dismissing school children because unfortunately they understand myth literally versus an, a responsible adult acknowledging that we foster those understandings in children year after year since beginning grade school with us we rip away their spiritual potential um i think there's a lot to say in terms of like maybe that's what's taking place but why it's taking place and exactly how it's taking place it, it's missing the mark it, it is uh every time i look at this stage i think back to uh 
to one of my instructors in um, at Colorado Christian, Mr. Pellin. And Pellin was actually the guy who um, introduced me to the concept of you you always need an atheist in the room. So I don't want to take credit for that. I, I absolutely, absolutely <laughs> stole that from Dr. Pell, Dr. Pellin. Good. But another thing that he pointed out, and I think that this will ring true to, <laughs> to a lot of folks, is that when you stack up, you know, you get a bunch of three to seven-year-olds in a room and you say, all right, which one is real? Christ or Santa Claus? To the dismay of, of many Christians, you know, nine out of 10 kids are going to say Santa Claus. And to his point, he said, it's because Santa, Santa Claus actually produces people. He shows up. And you get and you have like a tangible asset after Santa Claus has been there, you know, and the salvation is not a tangible it's not a tangible asset, right? So uh so it, it only it only stands to reason that kids are gonna believe more in Santa Claus than they do in Christ, right? Like um I think it's a funny uh comparison. I don't think it's fair uh because there are two entities that are doing completely different things. The reason why they're juxtaposed is only because the church uh, tried to appropriate all these uh, other, you know, celebrations, spiritual celebrations um, that were doing what they did yeah. for millennia. And then they tried yeah. to, you know, suppress them and superimpose a new deity in the, in the place of the old. So, you know, fast forward in, into the heart of, uh, commercialization and hyper-consumerism. It's just like, oh, well, of course, if Santa Claus throws some so, some, so, some toys out, you know, once a week, once a year, it's going to make more of an impact than Christ for the most part. Let me um, take this in a different direction. So I don't know if you want to put it like this, but we often idealize the spiritual developments of our ancestors to where you know you show up there and let's say they're living all of our ideals utopias right the language of the plants they and the earth they speak and the language of you know the the spiritual emotional development and sense of community that we so much you know, just hold in such high esteem. You're looking at something that has so much of what we are working for and longing for. And yet, if we're going to be true to what we're talking about here, it's not necessarily advocating a return to something that was. It's an acknowledgement of going kind of back in to the wave before you really catch the wave. The one that surfs goes back into the tide and then surfs in and catches the most of the yeah. wave of it. But I would still be really curious to know how do we get by the question of over-idealizing uh, from a spiritual and emotional development with oneself with each other with the plant world with the animal world uh with the cosmos 
what what do we hold them accountable to and how do they do we welcome them into something else um well that sounds and this may be really crude but it sounds like an argument that's kind of like this well when is the environment actually saved and then when and and when do you go too far and then you're giving up all these resources that you don't need to give up because you're so con- concerned with the environment that now you're not being progressive and you're not moving forward and you're not doing what you need what what you could be doing because you're so worried about this other problem that's not even a problem anymore um and my response to that is is kind of like well if that becomes a problem that'll be the problem so let's not stop the work because we can imagine like a, the pendulum swinging and being like too extreme at some point in the future. Right. Yeah, like right. we're so impoverished spiritually today that it's like, yeah, yeah let's first let's just do it. And if we and are at some point in the future too spiritual, I don't know what that would look like, <laughs> but let's let that be the problem of that day. Well, what, all right. Well, well answered. Like that is definitely a tip of the hat to our ancestors and cultures all around, um, which is something that we're all about. And also a recognition that at that point, if there will be, you know, something yeah. else to go towards. It's uh, a great one. I'll also say that, you know, I, I do a lot of work in genealogy, like it's kind of an obsession and it's easy to romanticize the lives of these names that you see in, in your past. Right. It's easy to just assume that they were all great people doing great things. Right. And until you read that little line of like (laughs) you, like I, like today I was reading a will, of one of my uh, great, great, great grandfathers where he was dividing up all of his cattle or all of his livestock and giving it to his uh, wife and and to his children. And then he also divides up all of his slaves and gives them away. And so I'm just like, Oh, (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, that's also real. So I think it's important to, to recognize that when we consider our ancestors that we're doing it with a sort of graciousness. Oh, yeah. we're, we're saying, yeah, right. I'm not going to get every right in this life. Oh, right. And hopefully right. my offspring and my great, 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 great grandchildren will give me a break for the things that I didn't get right. And I'm right. going to right now give my, my ancestors a break not hold them up on a pedestal and say that they were um, that they were what they aren't, but just allow them to be who they were and allow death and the afterlife to be a chapter change. Right. I'm just saying they're continuing to develop that they're not done, right. That their life in whatever they lived and whatever they did and all the, you know, quote unquote sins that they committed and all of the charities that they afforded the world that that's not all them, that they actually live and evolve beyond that once that passing occurs and that they are still here today. And they're learning from their learning from that time of wherever they were 
can that inform some of my learning right now? <laughs> like, is that at all possible? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. If I, and if I don't know okay. who they are, if I haven't done the work to research my origin story and, and to dive into it and be like, right. okay, where do I come from? Why am I here? Right. Like, how did I get here in right. a very mythic and literal faith sort of manner? Like I'm like, I'm here. Why? Right. <laughs> like, right. Why? Right. Which really like throws in, like, we're just throwing darts like crazy at this thing by Fowler. Yeah. Like, you know, none of us are born. It's not a tabla rasa when we come into this earth. Like the idea of old souls is a really hard one to dismiss. Yeah. And you want to throw up an old soul and say <laughs> that Fowler adequately describes them as the undifferentiated. Yeah. You know, an old soul comes in and you see it in like the iconic figures you know, such as the Christ or, you know, like where they seem to hit the mark early on, but this same stages of faith would not apply in those conditions. There's a certain understanding of we're not all starting at the same starting line. Right. It's amazing how we can say that from a social justice perspective, but then when it comes to spiritual development, when it comes to our ancestors, when it comes to how the the entity of us prior to birth, where are we coming from? Um, Are we coming from the Bardo? You know, what did we learn from our past life? All all of these things. It's like, well, well, we don't even talk about that. Like, let alone get, get to it in a, in any setting of conventional education. Um, now, if you do, if you bring it up yeah. in a high school yeah. uh, science class, like I do, it's great no. discussion because all of a sudden kids yeah. are like, well, crap, we've never talked about this before. <laughs> like this is, what, what, what class is this? Why are we talking about this? Right. And you have all those different, like there's some fear. But wait, 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 you gotta, you gotta frame that at least a little bit. Like even for some of our listeners that are familiar with the Bardo Tadol. Like what's interesting is that we could reference something else and all of us would be like, okay, like, even though I don't believe that I know of the kingdom come, I know what you mean. Right. 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 But you throw out something in our podcast, like Bardo to know it's like, and that doesn't mean that nobody knows. It just means like you're making a great point. Throwing a concept such as the Bardo to in the middle of a high school classroom would kind of trump a lot of things when we can dig into the later stages of Fowler, but certainly a preconception of the magnitude of the question. Yeah. Because our job is to say the question is far bigger. Yeah, the, the question, and we've talked about this in, just from a pedagogical perspective, is that what we want is to generate an environment that causes questions, right? Like how do you generate it? And because as soon as you, as soon as this is an, this is an emotional learning 101. If someone asks a question, they're already bought in. They're, they're bought into whatever the conversation is. Oh. If I tell people uh-huh. 
what is what, then I don't have necessarily, in fact, most of the time I'm, most of the time I'm pushing them away because they're like, oh, this guy is just telling me again, like everything that happens <laughs> in teaching, which is based yeah. on telling, oh. right? Oh, you're just trying to right. teach me some more. And I, my response to teaching Tell is that me. I, you know, jump into my discord account and I, and I chat with my friends, right? What, what we want to do is be able to initiate it's uh, some sort of catalyst that causes someone. It, it's just one. It could be one student to have a question. It, it could be anything. But at least, but as long as soon as they start, then you're like, okay, how far can I get with it? Um, and wow. with the idea of the Bardo, this is again a Christopher Bach uh, or a concept that I pulled from Christopher Bach and, and from a book called Life Cycles, where he really dives into. Uh, the empirical studies on experiences of past lives uh, that are dismissed for the most part in the Judeo-Christian world, because from that religiosity perspective, we don't really believe in that. And so it's just not talked about, but it isn't that past life experiences aren't happening here. It's that we don't give them any weight as a culture, but other right. cultures right. in the world do. And it's, it's taboo. It's taboo. Come on. So it is tempo. the Bardo is a place where. And, and wait, before you go into that. So let's define that tabooness. So to talk about future is not taboo, right? We go to afterlife, there's heaven, this or that. Anything. Yeah, but it's really abstract. It's like, it's the eternal. Yeah, but there's a framework. There's even books written about it. You know, you like we don't know what it's going to be like, but there's going to be gold, and so there's harps and there's angels singing, and you know everybody's got their house, right? Which is some form of anthropomorphized, like the idea of angels and everything is everything is anthropocentric. My point is that there's at least a conversation sure, sure, happening. Absolutely. Somebody can say, nah, no right, way. You're right. it's not gonna we happen we like have an that. idea of what happens right. after but when, death, but we don't ever talk right. about what happens We're okay. pre uh -huh. Well, and, and so that is a myopic understanding of eternity, right? Eternity is a concept that we discuss as long as it's in one direction moving right. forward. But eternity into there is no beginning of time. That's a hard one to begin to wrap our heads around, let alone what happened to us before we came here and what you were, you know, about to get into in terms of like, you could talk about heaven and someone could say, well, I don't really necessarily agree with that concept, but my concept of the afterlife is this one and, and it could be presented, but pre-life all of the life before this idea of the bardo tadol really comes in to say well i want to talk about this part you guys can figure out the the afterlife what about the pre-life because this is what i think and so what what is all of that well for one thing if if you entertain the idea of the bardo as being a place where prior to conception and then birth here within this plane at this moment you as an entity or with other spirits, you could call them angels. It's fine. They're your spiritual community, right? Uh, the people who 
you work out the problems of what you're going to set up for yourself within this next life. The, the concept of, of the earth plane and this existence, this three-dimensional existence is very much like a school. Like we're going to, we're going to go to school. Here's the objective. In this life, I'd like to learn this, 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 this. So I want to set myself up, right. you know, last in my last life, I think this is one of Beige's examples. In my, in my last life, I was a king. And so now I want to experience what it's like to be a pauper. Right. And so I'm going to go and everyone says, <laughs> okay, that's a great idea. So what, yeah. um, let's set things up in a way let's, let's prepare the learning environment in an intentional way. And this is what we do as holistic educators. We spend a lot of time preparing the learning environment, always preparing, always working on preparing them. The bardo yeah. And that is like the, where the committee gathers together to, work to brainstorm the uh the way that this existence is going to be uh, unfolded and it doesn't mean right. that you're going to have you, that you're going to achieve your objective but it, but whether you do or you don't you go back and you're like well this is kind of what happened and this is you know i got tripped up on on this thing again i you know for like the 18th zil 18 zillionth time i had another affair you know three three marriages and and, and my kids hated me. So I'm going to try that. I'm going to try this thing right. the next time. Right. Like the grief and, the, and to, uh, you know, go back to what the, what Fran talked about in terms of the brokenness was part of those uh, intentional learning catalysts, those prompts of like, okay, this is what you're going to have to deal with and how you deal with that allows for that other progression to happen. It, it allows for us to, really have a an emotional and spiritual stake in our learning is that fair yeah it is except that i feel bad that we didn't like what are we gonna make this like part four it's like oh my god like these <laughs> no, guys i think we should stop i think we should through. stop and i think we need a part four but you need a part four that goes back into fowler stages three through six <laughs> hopefully we'll stay on topic <laughs> and we're, we're going to call it, we're going to call it tonight. We did cover a lot of things. And, and if this was a conversation that was happening at a studio, one of our studio schools, um, it would need to take the time that it needs to take. And, uh, and that's what I think what's happening here. And I'm, I'm okay with it. If you're okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm okay with it. I feel that there was there was very little caution of well we should probably stay on topic. There was a lot of redirecting, which is like whoop. So all of that is an example of emergent curriculum. It's an emergent process. So we don't know. I mean, those of you, uh, when when Carl and I are preparing for for these, some sometimes we're more outlined than others, and tonight we were more outlined than the past couple of weeks. Um, uh -huh. but typically what happens when we're more outlined is that we have a lot to say about, uh, a, lo a lot of places that we can go while we're having these conversations. I don't know if this is happening with you, but I think back on conversations that we had with Paula and with Yell and yeah. Paul yeah. and with Ryan. It's like the rabbit holes yeah. don't stop. And when I think back on them, it, what, what I'm thinking back on is the learning that I absorbed from having them be a part of this. So it's going back to that idea of like, when you add a new person within the community, you add a new voice, you add a new perspective. Yeah. It totally 
changes. It, it, it is one of those catalysts that prompts my questions, right? And saying, okay, now, now what do we do? So what we're covering here is can, could never be comprehensive. It will never be comprehensive. Uh, it's only experiential and it's a process. And so if we come back to this, uh, this podcast in 10 years, who knows what we would have to say about it then? We may look back on ourselves. I may, I may look back and say, well, I, I was really immature at that point. You know, like I dismissed this part of Fowler and now I've really changed this perspective because I'm, you know, 57 years old now. And, and, and who knows? But that's, that's the learning process. And that's what's going on with, it's the, it's the way that we have to imagine our impact and our um, relationship with all of our students is that it's not finite. Even if we only experience a, a development of relationship over uh, a semester or a few weeks, the course changes that happen there, we can't always predict that in fact, we can rarely predict, I would say, um, because there's always that coyote energy there that's going to come in and say, oh, this is what you thought was happening. Well, guess what? <laughs> now it's this, right? Uh, we have developed, I think, an appreciation, if not a love, for when we get stirred up and when we get tripped up and are faced with looking at something in a way that we either couldn't imagine or thought we did imagine, but dismissed it. And then we're back at that point again, and we're going to say, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel it, it, it's worthwhile to slow down and frame that, you know, like as I don't know, 30, 40 year olds, one or the other, something there when life would what are the big shakeups in life it's like uh lost my job and then then there's this like cognitive hesitance as to where what well how do i respond to that and then um i remember uh at one one of the jobs that that i had lost or you had lost like you, you brought up this moment in Carl Jung's life in which someone had approached and said, oh, you let, what was that one? Was that where he lost a job and he said, well, you should be celebrated. Ah, he's like, yeah. yeah, oh, you lost your job. Well, right? this is the time to celebrate. Let's all, <laughs> let's all get a drink. <laughs> uh -huh. Everybody gather around, right? Right. Thank God you lost your job. That reminds me of it's this it's it's right up the alley of one of the most crucial pieces of wisdom that I gathered from Mark, uh, Mark Herkner, my beloved guitar teacher. When I was young, is he said, you know, I was a teenager and he was this wise man of, of 39 or 40 years old. And uh, he said something like, you know, when you break up, with someone it's a happy occasion because it means that both you and they are able to move in the direction to find 
the person that you're meant to be with, right? And that perspective, um, I think I was dealing with a breakup and I was just like, yeah, you know, this, this really sucks. And it totally, it's just a, it's just a mind shift, right? That's all it is. But if you're able to metabolize that, I'm like, that really is what what's happening. And, and, and it's happening with, with these other relationships that we set up, you know, not every relationship is a positive one, even in the garden, not, not every relationship <laughs> is a positive one. Right. And, and there are some that you have to break up with. Um, <laughs> but jobs are, are a perfect example. We'll talk about something that we get emotionally attached to and, and, it's because the financial stake is so dictatory. I talked about Maslow early on, but it's almost like when I think about Maslow within this context, it's like a sentence that you're dictated by. If you don't have your financial stability in line, nothing else can surface. You would not be spiritually developed. And so the panic ensues because it's so foundational. Whereas if you really think about it, you don't need to think long. You're like, man, if you're like spiritually got shit together, like you can go through some hard times financially. But if you don't have your spiritual shit together, you can't go through shit financially. Yeah. Right. But like the Maslow theory doesn't allow that either. It's so linear, so concrete, so foundational, so immovable that the yes, there's something to it and we would refer to it. But you can build a city on a concept of up and down, but you've got to have the perspective of what's going on and the geography that you're interacting with. And, you know, yeah. all of this is meant to be to give tools that allow the conversation without being threatened by something that we don't necessarily agree with. Sure. Yeah. When, when you're talking about Maslow, it, I always think it's important to, understand that don't use the tool for the wrong purpose so we teach this to preschoolers it's like here you have a hammer the idea of the hammer is not to uh smash bugs could you do it yes um that's not the intention um it's not to throw it's not a throwing device it has a purpose and you use the right tool for the right job and maslow's hierarchy of needs doesn't really tackle this. And so absolutely it has, it's relevant. You, you can't just throw out Maslow's hierarchy needs because you're just like, oh, look, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't understand that when you lose your job, you got to go celebrate. Right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> right. yes, yes, that's true. It doesn't. And it was never designed to. And yeah. it's why we need a lot of different tools. And yeah. And it's really why we're even discussing Fowler because as much as we might poke at Fowler, it's still an important tool for the conversation. Uh-huh. Well, with that, we are going to close off this week's session, part three of Originators Ehekat series on emotional and spiritual learning. Hope everyone can uh, join us for the next episode. 
Remember that we do have a WhatsApp thread. Uh, if you want to get in on that and you don't know us and you want to reach out to us, uh, do it through future at originative.org. Uh, otherwise, we will catch you next time. Great being with everyone. This conversation has not ended yet. <laughs> <laughs>